Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. It is just before Christmas, and so hopefully everybody's all feeling a bit merry. But obviously, one of the things that I've said that I've wanted to do with this podcast over time is not only highlight um, really good people and really good practice, but also highlight where human factors get involved in places perhaps we wouldn't expect. Human factors is really one of these things that if it's done well, you don't actually notice it's there. But when it's done badly, then you really get an idea. It really glitches with you because obviously human factors is all about how we interact with people. We see it in everyday things if you've got the, the mobile phone app that has something that isn't quite working in the way that you would expect. Or even in a more physical thing, like when you're trying to open a door and it's got a, a push sign when actually it means pull. And But also when you go into towns and cities and things like this and things are not where you expect them to be, things are not lined up. So one of the things that I'm really pleased about, uh, about today is to actually be able to dig into this a little bit more and look into the topic of in-service design. And to help us with this, we've got um, two great professionals from CC Design and Ergonomics, Phil Nutley and Chris Avis. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Hi. Morning. So obviously, I'm up in the ante slightly on what I did last time. I've I've done one interview, and that was a live interview. This one is a um, uh, interview with two people. So you you either go big or go home. And it's also my first interview that has been done done remotely over a network. So I'm was it based here in um, with, with my uh, K Sharp hat on, but you guys are, are based down in Brighton today. Do you want to tell us a bit about the facility that you're in, Phil? Yeah, definitely. We're um, we're actually uh, broadcasting today from the fuse box. Um, it's powered by Wired Sussex. Um, it's a great space that looks to promote immersive technology. Um, we have about 35 residents here that are working across design, architecture, art, science. Um, it's a space where we look at virtual reality, augmented reality and mixed reality. Um, we have the ability with uh, a 5G network um, that we're working on here and also a lot around uh, data and how we use data, um, particularly out in, in both commercial, cultural and the community around us. Um, the fuse box obviously has its own uh, recording studio amongst other um, areas we've got 360 degree capture green screen uh, 3d printing and we have a real candy uh, shop full of the latest <laughs> toys and headsets which is uh, is superb so um, I'm a resident here and have been uh, for a couple of years now but um, CCD um, uh, we have a space here uh, and of course we're using both immersive technology design thinking human factors um, in these spaces and kind of colliding them together so we're we're coming live from Brighton <laughs> we are that's fantastic it sounds uh, the, the exact sort of place that I need to come and visit um, so thanks for that introduction, Phil, and let's get on to you. So you're the Head of Experience Design at CCD. CCD. Could you tell us a bit about what that is, um, what, what that role actually means? Yeah, I, I suppose design has matured in, in certainly the last, um, you know, five to ten years. Um, I think uh, listeners and people uh, reading about design are starting to see it being used more broadly. 
Um, and I think that comes from um, we live in a society that is more around service and experience now. Um, to coin uh, Pine and Gilmore, the two Harvard professors, uh, we live in this experience economy. So my role is to design experiences with design methodologies end to end. And by that, to describe it in a little bit more detail, um, often we see an opportunity to design. You, you started by talking about an app. And an app is usually a way for an end user to an experience a digital platform, a product or a service. We often forget that we need to design from within. So the individual that sits within that organization needs to be part of that creative process. So at CCD, we very much think end-to-end. Um, we have a, a, a history of uh, 40 years within human factors and ergonomics, but we're now seeing how we blend that with human behavior and human-centered design. So experience design really is about taking uh, individuals from within organizations and getting them closer to end users and co-creating and co-designing better services and experiences. That's a really, really impressive way of looking at it because obviously the idea about looking at um, experiences is all about how we live lives now. And I think there's a lot bigger drive with everybody, not just about amassing products and things like that um, and, and almost wealth, but actually what experiences we can have in life. So that's really key. But you obviously don't just become the head of experience, uh, experience design. Um, you've also had a wide variety of um, other roles and things like that to get you where you are. So how did the journey start for you? Why did, how did you get onto this road? Um, well, I, I graduated from Ravensbourne, uh, now called Ravensbourne University in London, um, and uh, as a furniture and product designer. So um, very much looking at design um, uh, as a delivery, I suppose. So the, the classic brief where you would design an environment, an interior or a graphic or a brand. And, and probably the first half of my career was doing exactly that, delivering spaces, delivering um, products, uh, uh, interiors as they were called. Um, brands came along and wanted to be part of that kind of experience economy. Um, uh, but I've worked kind of uh, across many roles. Um, in, in I've been fortunate to travel and live overseas. I've worked in San Francisco, worked, in, worked and lived in San Francisco. Uh, I lived and worked in New York for five years, and I've also lived and worked in Rio for a couple of years. So um, I have a broad set of skills um, working basically across kind of digital and physical. Um, but I suppose my my grounding, and I, I know Chris will talk to, to his background with human factors as well, we were always looking at, at ergonomics and, you know, particularly when you're designing physical products, physical bits of furniture and physical environments, they need to work for everyone, you know, the percentiles. Um, so I've, I've come from that kind of classic design train background but certainly in the last 10 years, we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, where design is being used, you know, right the way from C-suite through to, you know, sitting with end users and, and, and observing them, you know, contextual inquiry, ethnography, understanding how people really, really use services. So my, my background's very, very broad. But uh, um, as I say, it's been, it's been many, many um, uh, opportunities, roles, within design as design doing and design delivering 
but more and more now, you know, that kind of strategic intent, that way of looking at things that are far broader and almost being a bit like a conductor, often I describe it, you know, <laughs> trying to bring things together. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the kind of background, really. That's brilliant. Do you think that broad range of experiences really contribute to how you deliver you in your current role? 100%. I, um, I think having that view, that kind of almost umbrella view, of a problem space um, it, I think is invaluable um, certainly the ability to be able to sit with my but you know Chris I have in the room here and my other colleagues at CCD that bring a wealth of experiences from different backgrounds I think that ability to be able to connect those nodes together and and form something that is of value um, that, that takes you connect the dots from inside the organization line people up um, get them to co-create and feel that they're part of that delivery of that service and experience, I think is really, really important. Cool. And you mentioned Chris just sat there. So, Chris, if I can just turn to you. Um, you've had a, a bit of a different background. You've come from, from the military side, like like myself. So you've, you've kind of gone either to the light or the dark side, whichever way you look at it. Um, <laughs> Could you give us a brief overview about what it is uh, about your journey, about how you've got into your current role, and then give us a brief overview about what your current role involves? Of course, yeah. So, so I started um, basically my my road from Human Factors. Uh, I went to Loughborough, and thanks to Mr. Murray Sinclair, uh, I am where I am because he sold Human Factors to me or ergonomics to me as engineering without the maths. So that was exactly what I wanted to to hear. Um, So yeah, left there um, and then I started working within sort of nuclear defense and uh, did that for a couple of three years and then moved over towards armored fighting vehicles. Um, So within sort of defense work for about 11, 12 years. And I found that really, uh, really useful because the, the the bonus of working within defence is you get to work with the end users quite a lot. Uh, you get a dedicated set of users that um, sit with you for you know a couple of three years uh, until they move on to their next role, and you're you're working with them from from day one, so uh, from initial concept all the way through to the end, and they know their role as a soldier. They know what they need from the vehicle that you're designing. Uh, yes, we have a set of requirements that we are working towards, um, but they won't tell you the whole story. You, you need to hear it from the, you know, from the horse's mouth. And, and they were very influential. And I found that immensely useful for my role because uh, essentially they were doing my job for me a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and I saw myself and my guys that I was working with as very much, we were the voice of the end user. So when uh, when we were sitting in design reviews, for example, and we were fighting their corner, I was feeling very you know passionate about the fact that we were sitting there talking on their behalf. Um, so you know people talking about well you need you need this switch over here. Well, I know for a fact you can't put it there because that's not part of their drills. So you need to move it over here, and and that made uh, that made the the argument a lot stronger in, in my opinion. So yes, and then I left there, and I've been with CCD since January of this year, and I've learnt a heck of a lot since being there. One one uh, one difference, I don't know whether it's the light or the dark side. I'd say it's the light side. Um, one massive difference is that within defence, it's very structured. You have a set of requirements you have to work to, um, and and that's good uh, to deliver a massive uh, you know vehicle or system, whatever you're using. Uh, within the industries we work within CCD, so we work within rail, we've done some air work, we, we've done some road transport work. Um, we're also working with um, customer within the NHS at the moment. Uh, the requirements 
are very vague in the sense of oh, we just need to make it better. Um, that's that's the big thing they want to fix. So that gives us quite a lot of flexibility uh, and a bit of blue sky thinking, which is which is something that I craved as as a as a human factors engineer. Um, and that enables us then to think outside the box a little bit more because with requirements you you can be quite funneled, quite structured. Um, but when you have no requirements or very vague requirements, you can be a bit more creative. And I'm finding that that's that's a massive positive to to the work we're doing now because if it was too structured, you only you could end up only looking at sort of a certain small path rather than the, the bigger picture. Oh, thank you. And. When you talked about the difference in users, obviously, yes, in the military environment, we have a very captive audience and we have a very uh, defined target audience description of, of who they are because the nature of it is a recruited force and that type of thing. With the type of work you're doing at the moment, how do you um, engage with users? How have you found that engaging with users is different? to what we do what we do now within defense they're giving to you you don't really have much of a choice you, you basically this is this is mark and he's with you for the next two years um, and he can open up the door to a um, series of other users if you need them so the job's quite easy um, within the work we do here we have to be a bit more creative um, we have uh, we always have points of contact that we can use so if we have a sponsor for the project we, we use them um, and then we we always ask for a user representative or representatives um, for example, with the rail, uh, it's a requirement or a, a must-have from Network Rail that we, we deal with quite a lot, that we have um, users uh, present at every single design review. And if they're not signalers themselves, for example, or train drivers, they're representatives that have got experience within that role. So uh, they are sort of given to us as well, but we have the ability to go a little bit beyond that and say, right, well, actually, I need, at this meeting, I need signalers, I need a driver, uh, or I need, I don't know, uh, a shift manager, for example, uh, because because of the type of work we were talking about. And then, you know, with a bit of luck, they'll supply those. So, yeah, that that's sort of the main differences, I suppose. Cool. No, thank you. I, I know it's slightly... Um uh, slightly of tangent about what I was talking about, but I always find this idea about how we interact with users mm. uh, really fascinating across the piece. So, just to steer us back onto what the uh, the the main thing about this is, it's it's about the concept of in-service design. So, I was wondering, Chris, if you could give us a a bit of an overview about what in-service design is and how will people see the effects of that on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, so I mean, my experience with in-service design is is less than a year working with Phil, um, but essentially there's a lot of crossovers that I'm I've noticed, and I'm hoping Phil will back me up on this as well. That um, essentially they both massively focus on uh, improving things for the end user. Uh, they we we help facilitate the users from beginning to end, very much like the human factors approach, um, and as Phil mentioned at the beginning. The service experience is crucial uh, and from a human factors point of view the user is part of the service so we work hand in hand to get through to make sure that the user has a good experience the overall system is designed in a way that makes it better for the for the for the human um, and there are many techniques that I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit that are, are very similar. They're called different things, but they essentially mean the same thing, or they very much look the same thing that uh, that have, we've been using as we've gone through. We've used uh, a, a cross-pollination between HF and service design on two projects at the moment. We're going to go forward and hopefully use it a little bit more. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the similarities are that we, we want to get the user through from start to finish, improve things for them, 
uh, and hopefully you know make them a very happy user brilliant um Phil, can you perhaps go into a bit more detail with maybe some, some actual concrete examples about where in-service design has been used and then also improved the end user experience? Um, yeah, I suppose to, to build on what Chris is talking about, you know, we, we as users um, use multiple services across any given day, right? Uh, and they often play out between digital product, um, verbal and visual communications and physical spaces. Um, and services are quite hard to sometimes design for because they're often hard to see, let alone feel. And so they often feel, you know, intangible, hidden from view. Um, and they can also be small moments, you know, microseconds deciding to touch an app and book something uh, to make you as an end user kind of aware of a great service so you know what does that to the listeners what does that look like uh, to the listeners to you and me well you know it's booking a bus ticket as you're paying for it as you're rushing to your bus stop you know it's grabbing some food via Deliveroo as you head home from work you know it's setting the temperature uh, at home on a cold winter's evening to 21 degrees celsius from your phone as you leave the train station so that is service design, you know, it's design-led, seamless services and experiences. And human factors and service design have a role in making sure that that seamless interaction works perfectly. Brilliant. You mentioned the crossover with human factors there. What, um, what human factors tools and techniques do you think you use most in order to deliver in service design? So... Um, Two, two particular service design um, approaches that we've used so far. Uh, one's called a service design blueprint, uh, which essentially, uh, from a human factors point of view, looks very much like a process flow uh, or a task analysis. You're, you're trying to break down the processes that the users uh, or parts of the user, are, sorry, parts of the system uh, are being undertaken from start to finish. So um, a good example of that was with the work we're doing for the um for the for the NHS at the moment uh we're looking at trying to get the patient from start to finish so the, the to start with the patient either dials 999 or 111 um and then loads of things happen in the background that the patient's completely unaware of and then at the end of it you get the patient out hopefully uh, healthy and well and back on the road and, and everything else the everything that happens in the background the way that it's structured, you're looking at getting the user in, sorry, getting the patient in, uh, you're then looking at how to deal with the patient, so much like a task analysis, so much like a big process flow. So, um, yes, we're calling it a service design blueprint because that's exactly what it's called from a, from a service design point of view. Um, we could sell it as a task analysis. Uh, it's a very much like, like a hierarchical, hierarchical task analysis. Um, we also look at things like ethnography. Um, which essentially in human factors world is organizational structures and cultures. So we would be looking at, uh, for example, if there was stresses within uh, certain certain staff of um, you know cognitive overload, for example, uh, we all know that that's probably more than just, oh, they're a bit stressed. There's, there's reasons as to why they're a bit stressed. So from an organizational culture, point of view or ethnography point of view we would look at well actually is there any changes we can make either from the top or from from an overall company point of view so they're they're different uh there's certainly two two other sorry two major um uh, overlaps that we've noticed uh, we also do an awful lot of observations 
So from a human factors point of view, you know, watching people is vital to understand how they do their tasks, um, how they communicate with people. Very much the same from a service design point of view. You want to know the bigger picture. It's not just about one person operating an app. It's very much an, an overall um, uh, sort of service that they are using, and there's many reasons why they want to use it. So uh, that's sort of the overlaps that I've noticed. I think the uh, from from kind of my background and working closely with Chris on a couple of projects, uh, or sorry, a couple of our most recent projects where we've really kind of enjoyed talking um, through where the crossover with human factors comes. I think both connect humans at the core. Um, I think service design probably takes a slightly more empathetic approach to the problem space, Um, but they certainly do complement each other. Um, They often say that design sits between art and science, Uh, and I think that human factors and service design probably sit between design and science, and I would probably say human factors is probably slightly nearer to the science end of the spectrum. I think when we, when Chris is alluding to the tools and techniques, I think we've both learnt how to manipulate and shape those tools. Um, certainly when Chris was talking to me about task analysis, um, we've seen a way of combining and um, uh, colliding task analysis with service blueprint, contextual inquiry, ethnography, um, uh, kind of bringing those two together. So, you know, design thinking and service design allow you to create a range of methods and tools and techniques to help people kind of share and co-create. And I think task analysis is, I think, particularly for those people that are working within what we call the back of house. Mm. So often, as you described there, within the, the kind of NHS service, they're things that are hidden, but they're, they're fundamental in delivering a better patient experience. Yeah. But that task analysis is key mm. alongside contextual inquiry. And we've kind of seen how we've, at CCD, have kind of combined both of those to create greater insight and also greater engagement for the people that are working within that back-of-house yeah. environment. Yeah, it sort of builds on what I was saying at the beginning of making sure you know we've improving the service experience for them, uh, but also the staff that are involved in that process. Um, and essentially the ultimate goal, no matter what you call it, whether it's service design, human factors, whatever, it's making sure things are a lot more improved for the end user, really. So do you think from... Basically, from what you've said, it sounds like there's a really great fusion going on between almost the two disciplines. Do you think that there are things, obviously coming from a human factors perspective, that there's tools and techniques in the service design element that we should be learning more and using more of, or do you just think actually they're just great and complementary? We've both gone deliberately silent <laughs> not to trip each other up, probably. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm I'm going to be very pro-service design methods. Um you know, I, I worked for about eight years with the Design Council um, that, that probably created uh, one of probably the out of, you know, service design and the problems that we now face and tackle with design are super complex. And they came up with a double diamond. You know, it's, uh, it's 15 years old this year. Um, it's a very, very clean way of allowing people to understand um, problem space and solution space, the ability to step back. And I think um, from my perspective, I think um, 
I'm as curious and interested to step back and understand more about human factors and where a level of detail is absolutely necessary to understand that problem space. Um, but I do feel that um, human factors, teams and consultants, and I certainly know our team at, at CCD are very open to learning more around service design, but I think that's, that in itself is, is design thinking and design methodology. We should be coming to the table very kind of open-palmed and saying, right, what, what works best for this particular problem? You know, it's not one size fits all, and nor do when we tackle a, a problem space at CCD, do we think this is a human factors problem. Mm. We're probably coming at it from kind of two or three different angles, including our teams of, of information designers, UX designers, uh, you know, and, and kind of wayfinding teams. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, that kind of multiple perspective of space is probably something that I think human factors people are certainly enjoying and I'm enjoying learning likewise mm. that you know that level of detail that you bring yeah so very very much so for myself as well I think the irony actually is that um, you know with with a human factors practitioner being a human factors practitioner you don't want to segregate and silo the end user however as a discipline we can become quite siloed and are oh, we going to use human factors technique I'm a human factors practitioner um, I've worked with psychologists I've worked with design uh, designers who are human factors consultants or engineers uh, because they're coming at it from a different angle so in actual fact yes they do complement each other with service design and human factors but if anything if we if 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 I was still call myself a human factors consultant in a few years' time, if I've got extra skills that I've learned from other disciplines, surely that makes my life easier because I'm sure you've experienced the same, Barry. Whenever you get asked by somebody, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a human factors practitioner or an ergonomist, and they look at you, oh, that's, that's nice. So what does that mean then? And, you know, the amount of times I have to explain what I do for a living, if I can find uh, techniques that make explain that easier, then I'm all for it. Um, you know, make, making myself and making other human factors practitioners uh, a much more well-rounded um, person and, and a service for the future. I'm, I'm all up for that. I'm, I will always promote and, and sell HF. Um, I think it's it's difficult to. I don't want to keep siloing what we do, and we're actually trying to improve that within the company as well. We're, we're trying to. Um, we may not be called human factors consultants going forward, we might be called something else because, again, by calling us human factors, we could be quite siloed. So we're, we're trying to break that barrier down, and if we can do that from a professional point of view in, in how we sell and how we, how we work, how we do our skills, I'm all for that. I, I've got to agree the whole idea about um, what is human factors and ergonomics. If I could actually tell my parents what I do and for them understand it, I think it would be an absolute <laughs> bonus. Uh, my mum uh, sells human factors and ergonomics to other people by telling them that uh, essentially I design coffee cups, tea cups, and uh, I do furniture because that's the only way I could explain to her what I studied at university, and she stuck to that, so uh, I can relate to that. <laughs> On on that note about universities, I wonder, and it's probably the, the it's true, isn't it, that within certainly design, um, the design realm, we're we're trying to th see uh, how we can re-educate and train people from a kind of multidisciplinary point of view. I wonder whether that's also true within human factors. Where where might some service design principles, 
start to be taught f- yep. within those courses mm-hmm. um, uh, because they truly are complementary and I think you can learn from both. Likewise, if, if you know, I'm just thinking of a couple of the um, the courses that I've taught on um, in, in London at, at several different universities and colleges, I wonder where some human factors, elements and principles would add extreme value to the way, uh, you know, that the next bunch of graduates come out into the to the world with with some of that level of detail. I think that's a really, really good point. And I think the people who are now putting together human factors courses, but I think also looking at broader human factors teams um, can be looking at a much broader uh, discipline spread to pull in to make an overall, you know, either human factors or just uh, human facing capability. But with all of this, Phil, what does success look like? Oh, wow. How do you know where, how do you know when you've achieved it? Uh, I think that comes down to people. Um, it's about getting people within the organisation, probably I'd say to see the potential in themselves first and foremost. Um, and then secondly, the way that they use process to deliver the projects and services around them. Um, for me, as a designer, I'm always interested to see how people co-create. Um, often um, within organisations, uh, the problems are usually hidden or suppressed. And so for me, success is about getting those people to see the potential in themselves uh, and to solve the problems and come up with really great ideas that they can proudly say, I, I did that, I worked on that with that group of people. So for me, it's about people within the organisations. That, that's success because you leave them with this empowerment, this way of, of seeing and believing that you know they do have the answers and then also seeing a tangible difference to end user. Um, so. Cool. So obviously with the, this isn't easy. Um, it, it can be quite in, intangible in some respects. It can be quite um, challenging. Um, so what are the biggest sort of challenges that you've actually faced on sort of like real projects? Uh, the obvious one is sarcasm. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've I've experienced it throughout my professional life. Anyway, um, you know, uh, people who don't particularly understand or see the value of human factors, at least to start with, become quite sarcastic. But uh, we we are finding that by not just by blending uh, service design and human factors together, but our approach, uh, as Phil said, we're facilitating the the users and the, the participants in what we do. So we're making giving them the power. By, by really pushing that point to them, they then don't see us as just coming in and fixing the problem for them and then you know, going away and, um, and then you know, taking all the money and then come back again in six months' time and do it again. They can actually see that there's a benefit they're brought through from beginning to end. Uh, all their ideas are thrown up on post-its on the wall so they can see them um, and then they get to discuss them as well and that we really do push that. So okay so Barry for example you've, you've, you've made a suggestion let's talk about it let's let's encourage uh, everybody to have a voice and you know you're allowed to disagree you're allowed to agree but um, ultimately it doesn't leave the room let's let's talk about this now let's see if this is actually a possibility and then we get people to vote on on these uh, ideas as well so it's a bit of a we call it dotocratic voting but essentially you get a little colored dot you put it on the post-it for people who think either it's a tangible uh, solution or no, that would never work. 
uh, or, or whatever. And then again, then you discuss, well, why did you think that? Or we take it away and we come back with some thoughts ourselves. But we never solutionize to start with. We're always there to, to give the tools to the people. Um, and then they essentially they come up with the ideas because otherwise we're just coming in and telling them something that they already know. I think um, ultimately there are a lot of words that are bandied around at the minute. You know, people put a lot of words in front of the word design and they put a lot of words after it. So, you know, design thinking, service design, user-centered, human-centered, um, you know, problem spaces. There's a lot of words, agile thinking. Um, so I think that uh, vernacular and the way people talk often creates a barrier. Um, certainly when I've come in a room, um, people have, you know, if they find out you're a designer, they tend to cross their arms sometimes. But within a few minutes of you kind of, you know, uh, telling them that it's a collaborative process, getting them up on their feet, so not sitting behind computers and desks, get them involved in the process to what Chris talks to. I think that opens them up, um, you know, the ubiquitous uh, Sharpie and Post-it uh, often reveals itself in in many ways, but it's a it, it is a very simple way of allowing people to to p- take part in a creative process. I think other examples of challenges are that you don't have enough air cover mm-hmm. um, from senior teams, particularly C-suite CEOs. If they're not lined up, then I think you struggle. Uh, yeah. That's been a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also if you've got um, staff that are disengaged. Um, from the start if they're not um, told about why uh, what's the strategy the A to B where are we going Um, although saying that I think the collaborative process that we're both talking about here and and Chris will uh, you know Chris and I both know that I think a collaborative process can reignite Mm -hmm. um, you know people's curiosity and interest um, so that that tends to be it. I think often if if the internal organisation is not lined up, that that can create some some friction. Put it that way. I think the the key thing actually we found is getting people on their feet. That's been really uh, obvious and and showing how sorry helping people engage a lot more. So many times I've been in meetings, everyone you know naturally takes their seat, sits around the desk, puts a notepad in front of them. Because uh, they want to learn, they want to listen, whatever, and we'll say, no, no, put that to the side. Right, everyone in your feet, and you you see people look at each other, go, well, what are they doing here? But within ten fifteen minutes, they're engaged, they're they're actively talking to each other. And we had a workshop only a couple of three weeks ago where there were people in the room that well they knew about each other's roles but they'd never met each other so we got them all together uh, and there were lots of assumptions that were being made between each other as well and then um, there was quite a, a heated debate but it was a good one where uh, this this chap presumed that a lady who working in a certain department did something and she said no I've never done that well you, you should yes yes but the reality is I don't um, but that facilitated a fantastic conversation between the two they learned something out of it so did we and we then obviously fed that back into the project to try and help improve the, the process. So definitely getting people on your feet, massive, massive plus. Yeah, and I think organisations don't spend enough time to step back and kind of look at the problem space or look at service or look at communications or look at the workplace design. Um, I think people you know, see it as it, it's two days out of busy schedules, um, you know, we've all got KPIs and projects that we need to deliver. But that stepping back and working with us has, has you know, immense, it can save you costs. That's great. But it can really add value. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, you know, I think that, that bias you talk to, Chris, I think is, is very true, isn't mm. it, often? 
And I think um, part, part of our process is to kind of untap that, unlock it, and, and work with people. Mm. Um, that and asking what their favourite biscuit is <laughs> often <laughs> often uh, often opens them up and, uh, and, really and relaxes them. Yeah. Really good icebreaker, that one. <laughs> Some interesting results. And yeah, is, is are, a yeah. as well really a biscuit? Not so sure. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, that clearly opens up the question, what are your favourite biscuits? Chris? Uh, it has to be a chocolate digestive for me. I'd go yeah. for a I'd go for a bourbon. <laughs> oh, co- controversial! Yeah. And, the, and and yourself? Yeah, I'm. To be you know the nice biscuits with oh, the, yeah. sort of the those like we should we should, like little bits of sugar on. Mm. I, I quite like them, but mm. I save them for a special treat. <laughs> the um, but the obviously we we are now getting towards Christmas, and every good ergonomist, human factors practitioner needs to have the the perfect ergonomic gift. What do you think? Chris, let's start with you. So, obviously, I mentioned earlier about uh, a bit of sarcasm towards uh, towards you know our industry and, and what we do. Um, I've also come across quite a few examples where you know we're told well that we've we followed a user centered design process, for example. You know, we, we've had user involvement. Um, so, uh, and then when you dig a little bit deeper, you think, oh, no, you haven't. You've just ticked the box there. <laughs> uh, a classic example was. Um, I was working on a project once, and I was told a full user assessment had been carried out. I said, fantastic, okay, can you give me the evidence of that? And I received an email from a chap called Dave, uh, who worked in the coffee shop. And the reason he was uh, uh, involved was because he looked about the right height um, <laughs> to, to, for an assessment where they were sitting down. Uh, looking at a computer screen. And, and I said, that, that's interesting. Um, so. Yes, that, that was one classic example which will always stick with me. There was another one where a user representative was uh, involved who had done the role 20 years ago. So obviously nothing had changed in 20 years, but you know right. he'd done it, so bring him along. Yeah. So my, my classic Christmas gift would be essentially making, I want to be shown and I want it proven to me that a design has actually had the, involve, had the involvement of the users from start to finish. You know, they've been included, they've been involved, um, and they've actually been thought of. So, they, you know, it turns out that the, the thing that's being designed for them, they give a damn, they mean it, and they flipping well prove it. That would make my Christmas. Sounds a bit sad, but that's essentially what I'd really like. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Phil, what about you? Well, my uh, my perfect ergonomic gift would be I'm I'm actually one meter ninety one. You can't see because obviously I'm sitting down. So I'd I'd probably ask Parliament to make it law for all doorways to be made two meters high. That would be my <laughs> perfect ergonomic <laughs> gift to myself. Uh, uh, given today's election day, I'm, I, I didn't see that in anybody's manifesto. So I guess <laughs> that, that's a bit disappointing at the moment. Uh, and what about yourself, Barry? What would be yours? Well, I've got to say that I, I do a lot of um, HCI-based work, but I'm just starting to get a lot more into the physical side of things. So actually, what would be really good is a really good, flexible tape measure that doesn't cut you when you're actually trying to measure things. <laughs> yes, it's that's a great. Real geek fest. <laughs> Guys, I'd like to say thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really good to see this cross-fertilization between sort of the in-service design and, and human factors and seeing how you're making um, a real... Um, integrated team there at CCD. Um, I again, thank you very much. I hope you um, have a really, really great Christmas, and hopefully, we'll um, be able to chat again at some point in the new year. Definitely. Thank you very much. Thank Barry. you very much. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Twelve O Two, the Human Factors Podcast. 
Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.